0: Welcome to the S-Files, sponsored by Serve Wisconsin, Wisconsin's National Community Service Board. I'm your host, Kyle Flower, Communications and Government Affairs Officer for Serve Wisconsin. S-Files is your look into the impacts and stories of AmeriCorps members and volunteers serving throughout the state of Wisconsin. Each episode, we'll be digging into their service stories or S-Files to learn about the people and programs whose service is meeting critical needs across Wisconsin and enriching the lives of the people and communities they serve. In this episode, we'll be talking with two AmeriCorps VISTA members that are helping to address poverty in different ways across the state and are serving as part of the inaugural year of Serve Wisconsin's AmeriCorps VISTA initiative. Up first, we're going to talk with AmeriCorps VISTA member Kaylee Ramirez about her experience serving at Carroll University this year. And so, Kaylee, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about what your AmeriCorps VISTA service looks like at Carroll University?
1: Yeah, so my role at Carroll is the food security coordinator. The two like big goals of my VAD were to form a needs assessment about food insecurity on campus and then forming a food box program with the Waukesha Food Pantry.
0: That's wonderful. So could you give us a little bit of what your day-to-day service looks like carrying out those different goals?
1: Yes, so every is very different. I work a lot with different departments around campus, so they really help me like form the needs assessment and forming this food box program. And a lot of it is also forming other resources that can be used right now for students that aren't food insecure. One of the main things that I've been doing is called the Carol Cupboards. There are many food pantries around campus. There's like four of them. And we're working on adding another right now. But basically, it's like a take what you need, give what you can kind of deal. So Students can donate food to it if they can or if they just need a quick by before class. If they need dinner, they can grab anything they need. It's no questions asked. So I've been working on that a lot too. And then I just find like many projects to support everything I've been doing. So right now that is going through all the data from our needs assessment. That's been a big thing that we've been working on. And also one other thing that we've been doing is the career closet. So that's kind of complementing food insecurity with just like basic needs. It's going to be a Little shop for students to go get like professional clothing for any like interviews like job fairs stuff like that so that's been really neat
0: that's wonderful is there a set location for where the clothing corner will be located on campus
1: Yeah, so it's just going to be like a week in February. It will be in our ballroom, and it's all day for the whole week. Students can just come in, take what they need.
0: That's wonderful. So students can be then donating to that, and then the community donating to it, and then people will be able to come in and pick up what they need. Yeah, we've
1: had a lot of students, faculty, and staff all donating. We have a ton of clothes right now, and it's only December. So it's awesome to see that, what everybody's been giving us so far.
0: That's great. So good luck on gathering stuff the next couple of months, and then for when that launches in February. Thank you. And so, you mentioned earlier doing a needs assessment. So, can you tell us a about what was on that needs assessment and kind of what data you've know, been able to find so far?
1: We used the USDA survey, like screener for food insecurity for households. And then we also added some questions that are more unique to Carroll University. So, if students are aware of the resources we have, if they think those resources are helpful to them. So, we sent the survey to every student on campus, so undergrad and graduate was 3,428 students and we got around like 800 responses. Not all of them were complete but (laughs) we take what we can get but the actual complete ones was over 600 so that's still some really good data that we can use and so if I can give you a little rundown of it if you would like me to. Sure that'd be great. Just looking at a few of the questions one of them was in the last 12 months did you ever cut the size of your meals or skip meals because there wasn't enough money for food and 35% of the respondents for that question said yes. Another question was, in quotes, I couldn't afford to eat balanced meals, was that often, sometimes, or never true for you in the last 12 months. And the options for that were never true, sometimes true, and often true. The USDA considers sometimes or often as food insecure. So if we combine those two, it was 48% of those respondents said sometimes or often.
0: Wow, that's That's pretty high.
1: Yeah. and The last one that was really kind of surprising to me, I guess, not surprising, but it was just, it really blew my mind when I saw this, was do you think that Carol's Cupboards and or a food box program would benefit you? And the options were no, maybe, yes, or prefer not to answer. So when we took all the yeses, the maybes, and the prefer not to answers, that was 61% of the respondents said that they could benefit from those resources. So a lot of students on this campus are affected by food insecurity because this is also a very small sample size of our campus. So yeah, we are definitely taking all this into consideration and how we can better use our resources that we have and spread the word that food insecurity definitely does exist at Carroll and all over the United States on college campuses too.
0: Yeah, that's a much larger amount than I think most people would think of when you're thinking about a college campus.
1: For sure. And a lot of students also, you know, because food insecurity is can be thought of as like chronic like I feel like a lot of students are thinking oh like people have less than I do like I don't need to be using these resources or they're embarrassed to use it or like there's just so many different reasons why a student may not be utilizing these resources. I think we have discussed this before but I think there's also dignity and choice and so like you could be food insecure and have a thing of ramen but is that the most healthy people don't just want to have a thing of ramen for dinner they should have the right to have a nutritious meal and so a lot of them also were saying that they wanted the option to have fresh produce. So that's what we're working on with the food pantry is giving those students more of an option for fresh produce and possibly adding refrigerators to our little mini food pantries across campus.
0: That'd be great uh, as a way to expand the accessibility of those goods, because unlike the, the shelf stable stuff that you have there all the time, that those things will need some other form of like way to keep them fresh for folks. Yeah. And then so looking at that needs assessment, what looks like some of the next steps that you'll be doing with your service then?
1: We are going to just keep going with the food box program. We're hopefully doing our first distribution December 14th, I think. So that is going to be hopefully really helpful to a lot of students. And then we're going to be adding some additional locations, changing locations of the cupboards just so students' privacy is more protected because I think... There's a really big stigma around food insecurity. And yeah, that's a lot of educational outreach, I think. We're, doing, we're working with the Milwaukee Hunger Task Force to do, I think it's called Food for Today. So it's a simulation of students experiencing food insecurity and how they would get food in certain situations so that they really understand the challenges that a food insecure individual has to face on a daily basis.
0: That's a great idea, adding locations that allow a little more privacy versus what could have been the past, the middle of a student center somewhere else. This might give them a little more comfort trying to go and pick things up. And then Kaylee, you mentioned doing the food box delivery. So could you explain for us how that program is going to work?
1: Yeah. So all the students, so after they took the needs assessment survey, they were automatically, it gave them a new browser of a survey if they were interested in the program. So they could fill it out if they just wanted more information for it. And we had like over 100 students say that they would be interested in it. So from there, they got another (laughs) form and basically just like saying... If they wanted perishable and non-perishable foods, non-perishables only or non-perishable perishables and then frozen meat was also an option. So in case they're like living off campus, if they have a family, whatever, they also have that option. And so then they will all receive a like a ID number, I guess. And so on the day of distribution, all they have to do is go in the room. No one will be in there. They will all have individual pickup times. And they can just grab the bag that their number is on. So they don't have to run into anybody. They don't have to to prove anything, like show their name. Everything is very confidential.
0: That's great. And so then are you helping then pack all those bags together as well?
1: I might be. That's kind of more of the hands of the um, food pantry because they have a lot of volunteers there. So I'd be more than willing to help if I needed. But we haven't gotten as that far as to like the logistics of that yet.
0: That makes sense that you're doing a lot of that capacity building piece around getting the student access for it. And then Kaylee, why did you decide to serve with our AmeriCorps VISTA initiative this year at Carroll University? So I was
1: originally in physical therapy school at Carroll University and I just was not very passionate about it. Um, my undergrad was in sociology so I always had a passion more for those like topics and like giving back and serving. So AmeriCorps and Peace Corps was actually something that I had always looked at as an option to maybe instead of PT school. And then I saw this uh, year of service at Carroll University and I just thought it was a really good fit because it was where I went to school and I thought I could give back to school that gave me so much. so that's wonderful.
0: And so I know it's been only been a few months so far, but do you have any favorite memories or some stories or highlights from your service you can share with us?
1: Yes, this is—it's a little like a, a sad story, but it has a good ending. As you may have heard, so I'm in Waukesha, and that is, we're right by where the Waukesha parade incident happened. So that was right before our students' Thanksgiving break, and we were gonna have a food bag pick up for them to come get food in our ballroom. So, same type of thing, but just through Carol. And after the parade happened, a lot of students left campus. The ballroom where the pickup was supposed to happen became the community resource center. So it was just up in the air. And I I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get these students food. Like they, the break was like almost a week. It was very jumbled all of a sudden, like out of nowhere. But there were so many departments on campus that like came together and helped get these students food. And I just thought it was the most awesome thing ever to see. Public safety took all these bags of food to to give out. And then the events and reservations team helped me find a new location. Everyone was just so supportive of one another to help these students. And I just thought it was really awesome to see. It's like a sad circumstance, but to help the community of Carroll was really awesome.
0: That's great to see everyone pull together during that incredibly difficult time for the community down in Waukesha to still work and help out the students and mitigate the food insecurity issues that a lot of the students would have experienced over the break. And then Kaylee, what are you looking forward to during the rest of your service over this next year?
1: I think I'm really excited to see how many students are going to be helped with the food box program because their sign up is still ongoing. So we're still collecting um, people's sign up forms. And also for this needs assessment, we've been doing a lot of data analysis on it. So I think putting it all together into a formal report And maybe some infographics and just getting it out into the campus and even the community so people can see how significant food insecurity is. It's going to be really, really great and hopefully create more change and some capacity building in there.
0: That'd be great. Will you be presenting the data to some different people at the university?
1: Yes. So there's, it's called the senior leadership team. And it's basically like the most, like the presidents on the team, like the most high ups in the university, I guess, as you can go. So we're hoping to get this information to them. And then just to all faculty, staff and students, honestly, just mass dis- distribution of it.
0: So I think it'll be a big eye-opener for folks when you're looking at those numbers that I don't think people will be really prepared when they hear those numbers, I think people would be shocked to hear they're that high.
1: Yeah, I definitely was because we already have such a small campus. And so when you take this, even though it's a smaller sample, so you say if it's actually only 2% of campus, 2% is still say oh, like 200 students and that's still too many. Even one is still too many.
0: So... Has your AmeriCorps VISTA service maybe influenced what you're thinking about doing going forward after your service concludes?
1: Yes. So I actually, I applied before my service started. I applied to get my master's in social work. And so I had deferred it to, you know, think about it during my service. But I've decided to go ahead and pursue that for next year at University of Michigan.
0: Well, good luck and hope that your studies go well there.
1: Thank you. I'm very excited.
0: And then good luck with the rest of your service here and getting all these different programs instituted at Carroll University to help students address the food insecurity issues on campus.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a really neat experience.
0: Up next, we're talking with Tony Schultz, who is serving at the Great Lakes Intertribal Council. So Tony, how are
2: you doing today? I'm pretty good, thanks. It's been a good day.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Could you start off by telling us just a little bit about your AmeriCorps Vista service at the Great Lakes Center Tribal Council this year?
2: Yeah. So for my Vista service at Great Lakes Center Tribal, right now they have me working on a grant, and that grant has been awarded to the tribe known as the Stockbridge Muncie Band of the Mohicans. That's mostly what I primarily do. I I work with the tribe on that grant. And for that, I ended up driving up to the reservation. And my site on the reservation is at a place called the Arvid E. Miller Museum Library Building. For the grant itself, it's through the Nota Three III Foundation. And for it, we have received funding to work on a Program matching tribal youth with tribal elders. Nota is actually located in New Mexico, but various other tribes from around the United States received this grant. So they're kind of hosting it. And then we do these virtual meetings. There's actually another tribe in Wisconsin that got it, which was Ho-Chung. Yeah, they've given us a lot of flexibility. They've given each tribe a lot of flexibility in how they want to create this uh, youth elder program matching tribal youth with tribal elders. For the Stockbridge Muncie, the idea that they actually wanted to do, at least originally, was to interview tribal elders around the reservation and get them to talk to tribal youth about their stories or traditional knowledge, such as skills in herbs or medicines, crafting, fire making, or any of those types of things. But unfortunately, as we all know, COVID came along and it's it's still going. So these plans had to change because there are these ma- Mandates on the reservation, keeping everyone safe. So, those have kind of moved more towards virtual things. We'll still be interviewing the elders, but they're not going to be coming into contact with the youth direct. They're going to be more recordings, uh, video recordings. We're going to turn those into programs. We also wanted to do work on creating a boxing program for the youth, and that would have had elder mentors and coaches. But we have to sort of reconsider how that would work now with the new mandates and how we keep everyone safe. It's a lot of difficult things to maneuver around. It's a lot of creativity and patience required to figure out how to continue this project with this virile crisis going on right now.
0: So the recordings you will have more of a digital library of them that will be able to be used in the future for other programs?
2: Yeah, that's correct. So we want to have them kind of in a digital library, but we also might be able to incorporate them into existing virtual programming maybe classes we could do where they look at these these videos so we could have for instance an elder could teach about basket making and that would be a video series that the youth could use and maybe we could send them the materials to make baskets so that would be an example of how to do a whole programming out of uh, those videos
0: when you're doing the talking with the tribal elders are you doing all of the recordings of
2: the tribal elders in person? Or are you doing some of those online as well? Well, they have, so far it's been in person, but they have the option if they want to just record it on their phone and send it to us, they can do that too. And then we can kind of edit that into a program. But mostly it's just, I try to find people in person because the tribes usually prefer to do things in person. It's all about that connection. And
0: are they video interviews or video recordings? They just sound recordings? It can be,
2: well, I think we prefer the video, but if they wanted to do something else, if they're maybe not comfortable on video, we could do an audio recording too. If it's something more hands-on where the, the youth has to see it, then we'll need to do a video. For example, if they're teaching how to make corn husk dolls, we'll need to see at least their hands to show how they're putting together these dolls. But if they're telling their stories or something, then definitely they can just do an audio recording. So there's a lot of flexibility. It doesn't really have to be one thing or the other. I guess the emphasis is really on making the tribal elder feel comfortable.
0: That's great. And then have there been some maybe favorite stories that you've recorded or most interesting things
2: you've gotten to record so far? Well, I worked with Karen Gardner on making Cornhouse Dolls. We did a video on that. And she was a real delight to talk to because – I think we just really connected. She had so many interesting stories about her time on the police force. I'd say we talked for hours. I mean, just me hearing her stories and what kind of things she saw in the police force, it was just really riveting to hear. I really enjoyed making that connection with her.
0: That's wonderful. And then, so Tony, what does your day-to-day service look like at Glitzy?
2: A lot of it's pretty variable, but one thing that's consistent is I'll go up to the reservation, and that's about two and a half hours away. And when I'm up there, I help with the planning of the program. I'm also figuring out what types of activities we could do to get the youth and elders together. And that's based on what kind of knowledge is on the reservation, what kind of skills I can find that the elders will have. For that, I do a lot of networking. I'll go around the reservation and I'll be trying to find elders that might be interested in participating in the project. I'll hand out flyers I talk about the program. I'll be going to various houses or places on the reservation. and I kind of have a running list where I might have heard of certain tribal members from somebody that might know a skill such as Basketry or maple syruping or moccasin making, or that they might have stories, and then I'll ask that person from the list if they might be interested in the project. Another thing I do is also I also have lunch with the elders at the Elderly Center every week, and I do that to help build important connections with them and also to meet new elders that might have these skills or stories to share. We get downtime sometimes, and for those downtimes, I'll actually be helping build capacity for the museum itself where I'm based for my site. So a lot of that is I'm helping to organize the photo archives. That's important because these photo archives keep the tribe's stories preserved and easy to find for generations to come.
0: No, that sounds great. By forging those connections with people, having the opportunity to really just introduce them to what you're doing so it's not a cold call when you're approaching them. That's something that comes up more naturally and they can build up a, a relationship and understand what's going on with the project.
2: Yeah, definitely. The report and all. Building that, building those bonds with people making it easy. I talk to people and they say that they don't have any stories, but then I start talking to them and then they end up talking for two hours about their stories.
0: That's wonderful. I think that's the great part about doing that is that once you get someone rolling and let them realize that I do have a story that's valuable
2: to tell. And I do have these experiences that then it can just keep flowing. When you get talking, then they can keep talking about their story. Then you can keep asking more questions, but you got to get them going. Yeah. Just keep it natural.
0: And then on the days when you're not heading up to the reservation itself, what are the service activities you're doing kind of on the virtual end where you're serving when you're not up on the reservation itself?
2: There's a lot of different research. There's different outreach I can do for the projects. I also do work for Gerald Ignace Indian Health Center that's in Milwaukee, and I'm helping them build capacity. So that's right about 10 minutes from where I live. So I go up there and I do remote work for them, too, but I go up there usually once a week in person. And I help organize and structure data relevant to the tribes in a way that can help them make sense of it. So, for instance, I recently worked on creating a chart based on data that would help identify areas where there were the highest native concentrations in Milwaukee. And with that data, we were, well, we haven't done it yet, but we can reach out to these areas and let them know that Gerald Ignace exists, and what sort of benefits it can offer the Native community. That's
0: great. And so you're building up that capacity, not just in one part of the state up north, but also having some role building up some capacity down in Milwaukee as well. Definitely, yeah. One nice aspect that hopefully will come out of this is you'll have that permanent record of these conversations and these stories they'll be able to use well into the future, hopefully, at least that might be one bright spot out of this initial struggle, and you had to change things around then have you done anything with trying to reach out to any of the folks that are in Milwaukee to record any stories as well for those that
2: might have just relocated? That's a good question. I hadn't really thought about that. I know the project is only really focused on Stockbridge stories, Stockbridge Muncie stories. It'd be, I wonder how I would be able to pinpoint any of the Stockbridge Muncie living in Milwaukee. That'd be interesting to do if there was a way. And so then the part of the
0: VISTA project that's
2: working down in Milwaukee, that's more of a,
0: a larger scale approach versus then there's the smaller grant part that you're up working with the Stockbridge Muncie.
2: Yeah. So the stuff at Gerald Ignace is for all, all the 11 tribes. And I, 11 fairly recognized, and then there's Brother Town as well. So any of the tribes really. That's just all outreach. So we also – We'll try to reach out to tribes that are through any parts of the state, if we can, just to let them know Gerald Ignace is here, because it, it is the Indian Health Center in the state.
0: So the goal is to, once you build up the connections with the individuals, it's to help them gain awareness about the health access there?
2: We just try to get the word out to them. So we find, with this data that I'm helping them make sense of, we find out where the tribes are located, and then we try to reach out to where the highest concentrations are, Right now it's Milwaukee, but we try to do the state. So we just get our information out, whether it's flyers, email, newsletters, and we just want them coming in, really. We always wanted to do something that was going to be around forever, something sustainable. It would preserve the tribe's history, its heritage, its people, and then, you know, there's going to be a lot more of that now because it's required. So this will be around forever. So there's some good that came out of it, definitely.
0: And then with the boxing program, is that something that you're looking at, maybe trying to figure out what it
2: could look like more in the long term versus the short term? Yeah, definitely. We originally wanted to use some of that grant money, actually. Well, I'll give you some context. The tribe at first had a boxing gym, but that closed for various reasons. And we were trying to get that whole thing started up again. And we wanted that to stay. We didn't want it to close like it did before. So that was the whole plan. And we still want to do that. We're just trying to figure out how we'd even have the gym. The youth had to be six feet apart, social distance. They got to have masks on. And that's not really practical when you're boxing. It's a really exhausting sport, really physically demanding. But maybe we could do recordings, boxing lessons. And then if it ever lets up we could do more in-person stuff but we definitely still want to do something really keep this boxing program forever we don't want it to close down like it did in the past we just have to really be creative on how we're going to do that because it was already sort of a challenge to keep it going considering it already closed once before but now we have to figure out with covid uh, there's just so many things to consider
0: No, that makes sense. That's one of those where with something that is so very close level, like face-to-face, it's going to be difficult to do it in person until
2: the pandemic passes. Especially with the sparring and all that, too. That's not going to be able to happen. Well, hopefully,
0: once the pandemic passes, they'll be able to figure out how to reestablish it
2: going forward. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the idea. A lot of planning in that right now. We're in that phase with everything, really.
0: So Tony, you were one of the first three VISTAs when we did our launch of Serve Wisconsin's VISTA initiative. It's now grown to more people certainly throughout the state. But when we first started, we had three host sites and you were one of the folks, you were at Glitzy. So could you tell folks a little bit about some of that early work you did and also helping build up the
2: Serve Wisconsin Vista Initiative. The earlier work I did, it was more focused on just building their relationship with the Stockbridge Muncie, building that connection with the tribe and thinking about possible ideas for the project that we'd be doing. I also did this other project, which was to, to basically put into a database every single point of contact for all of the 11 fairly recognized tribes and Brothertown as well, which was... Uh, we were trying to see if they would want a Vista and they would be doing the same thing that I'm doing. That was some of the earlier projects. And so then started at Gerald Ignace. The project kind of went more underway at the Stockbridge. We got kind of pla- past the planning phase. And now we're just trying to wait on the funding so we can just start. So Tony,
0: why did you decide to serve as America Vista initially? And why
2: serve at Glitzy? I think one of the things that I've always sort of wanted to do, and that's sort of been my purpose in life, is to reverse colonization. So obviously to me, this initiative really stood out because that's what this is. We're preserving these traditions that a lot of them were lost. A lot of these elders were not encouraged to tell their stories. They weren't encouraged to practice their traditions. So it's really important to get that back, to revitalize these things, to revitalize that identity within the community and help rejuvenate the the spirit of the people. And another thing, I guess I've always just really wanted to work with the tribe since I always thought that there would possibly be a lot of wisdom that they would have that could help me along my own journey. And there would be a lot of fresh perspectives that I never really considered. And I'd say overall, I was definitely right about this. There's a lot that I've learned from these people, a lot that I've learned about myself even.
0: So I was going to ask you, what was up next after your AmeriCorps Vista experience. So it sounds like you're considering doing a a second term. So, any plans maybe for what might happen after that second term?
2: After that second term, if it happens, which I feel like it needs to with the way the project went, after that second year, I would eventually want to go to Australia to live there with my fiance. And over there, I'm planning on pursuing a graduate program. This will probably be in classics.
0: Well, good luck. If you guys decide to make that move all the way across the world over to Australia, good luck with that. Good luck with your future studies. And thank you just so much for your Vista service this year and helping us find a lot of those early contacts. We've been trying to expand the Vista program and then doing the work up and helping out in so many different ways up with Glitzy. And then good luck with maybe doing that second year of Vista service. And we look forward to seeing all the things you can get done
2: hopefully yeah i want to say <laughs> so, well thank you so much I had a great time talking to you today all right have a good day I had a good time talking to you too bye have a good one
0: and thank you again to both kaylee and tony for sharing about their s files and giving us two more stories to file under service thank you for tuning in to the s files podcast produced by Serve wisconsin i'm your host kyle clower your producer is Serve Wisconsin intern, Anna Daniker, and as always, a big thank you to everyone that serves here in Wisconsin. Remember, the S and S-Files stands for service, and you are the reason we have so many great stories to highlight. Tune in next time for another page pulled from the S-Files.